And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Code Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Pooch Crude Street... Pooch Street Podcast. You have to leave that in. I think I will. And with special guest Maureen McHugh. Welcome, Maureen. Hi. <laughs> that was a pretty good welcome yourself. Hey. It's lovely to have you with us after after all the time we've been sort of bopping back and forth a little bit trying to get you on and so so welcome. Well, thanks for having me. So excited to be here virtually. <laughs> and you're virtually here, which is but you're in the LA area, which to to the rest of the world is pretty virtual anyway. Oh, that's true. Um, that's true. It feels pretty virtual even when you're in LA. <laughs> Well, let me let me offer my congratulations, belated congratulations, six months late on on winning a Shirley Jackson Award for After the Apocalypse. Um, I was a am a total fan of Shirley Jackson. Um, my favorite book is uh, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. So it was really extraordinary to get that award. It was, and I uh, I, I I can be a little bit of an insider because I was one of the judges this year. Uh, and one of the things that didn't come up for very long, but one of the things that the Shirley Jackson Awards uh, are not for uh, are science fiction books. And now admittedly, after the apocalypse is a book of short stories, there's some stories in it that are clearly science fiction, but isn't, isn't it the lead story that's your zombie story? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, okay. it's the first story, yeah, that's the zombie story. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So th- th- that that might have just put it right over the edge and say, okay, there's a zombie in this. And... <laughs> but it's a very scientific zombie. It's a scientific zombie. Yeah. But don't say that too loudly because you got the Shirley Jackson <laughs> work for it. Well, I should ask, how did you come to be writing zombie stories? I don't associate you with writing zombie. It doesn't seem like your thing. And yet you wrote a couple of them, didn't you? No, I think that's my. Well, I don't. Do have I? Well, I only can remember the one. Well, my son said to me. Now you have to understand, my son's twenty-seven. Yeah. But my son said to me uh, a couple years ago that he had this really cool dream. Yeah. He wanted me to write a story from it. Um, for usually those are the words. Those words are kind of the kiss of death. I had a dream. Would you write a story? <laughs> but my son has never asked me to write a story. We've written a story together when he was much younger. Uh, when he was in, in middle school, but uh, I, I couldn't bear to say no, and it was sort of zombies meet um, Escape from New York. Yeah, and That's I was thinking I don't write zombie stories, but <laughs> I really couldn't turn him down, so I did. And you put them in Cleveland. Well, I was trying to think. He had this idea that there had been a zombie apocalypse, and that yep. in some of the cities they just gave up and walled it off. And I thought. Detroit and Cleveland, uh, the Ninth Ward of, you know, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. We lived in Cleveland at the time, so it was easy. (laughs) But when you were putting the collection together, it's an unusual single author collection in that they're all apocalyptic stories, but they're all different kinds of of apocalypses. I mean, did you have any of that sort of thing in mind when you were doing this, or did you just found that you'd written a bunch of apocalyptic stories at one point? I... For a long time, I thought that I should try not to write stories that succumbed to despair. Uh, I'm a rather depressive personality, and and it seemed to me to be a cop-out. I think tragedies are easy to write. Well, nothing Mm. is easy to write, but it was easy to go in that direction. Okay. But... um, once I started working in the field I work in now, uh, where I wrote a, a website for a larger project one time that got one million or two million, I can't remember which, discrete hits, meaning discrete IP hits. Wow. That many people clicked on it. It occurred to me that my effect on the world was in my short stories probably not major enough that I should feel this huge moral responsibility not to despair. And so that sort of freed me up. (laughs) Also, I'm middle-aged, and worrying is something I do really well. So I got to play out all of my fears, and I just sort of relaxed into that, and I started doing that. I started exploring things that really made me worry. 
Mm-hmm. And I'd written, I don't know, six or seven of these stories, and I thought, whoa, I've got a theme here. <laughs> oh, so after okay. that, I wrote them intentionally. So, so I, to, to be simplistic about it, do, do the stories, do your, does your short fiction kind of break into periods then? Because there are stories that are in Mothers and Mother Monsters, and then there are stories that are after in After the Apocalypse. They kind of break into stories that are around... These sort of you know, you know the ones you talk about from after the apocalypse that are around your sort of fears and the and the earlier groups of stories which maybe do focus around other kinds of issues. Well, um, the the truth is, uh, when I was writing Mothers and Other Monsters, I was really worried about being a bad mother. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and there are mother there's a, a a mother story in After the Apocalypse. Mm. Um, That's about, the most disturbing story there. Oh really? The effect of centrifugal force. Oh, the the last one after the apocalypse. There's two mother stories actually. Well, I can after think the of. apocalypse. Yes, after the after apocalypse. It's one that seems to me to just undermine every other post-apocalyptic fiction I've read. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. So basically, um, it's parenthood and other apocalypses. Yeah, and and my um, third novel, or fourth novel, um, Necropolis, has a mother at the middle of that, literally, in the. The third section of five sections is a, from the point of view of the mother. So there's a lot of kind of creep. But yeah, I, I, sort of, yeah, there are stages in my life and my writing really, I think, reflects where I'm lodged at that particular moment. So, sorry, you go, go ahead, Gary. I was going to say, if you go, the, the other aspect of mothers, they're, they're not only the disturbingly Hmm. I don't know how I describe the mother in After the Apocalypse, but they're the, they're the they're the helpless mothers. I'm thinking all the way back to the Lincoln Train now. Um, yes. Mother and they're they're and graphic. It seems to me, as I recall, um, in Mothers and Other Monsters, there are three or four stories that touch upon some kind of Alzheimer's or dementia or the problem of dealing with aging mothers. Of course, most disturbing in the Lincoln Train because that's a monumentally disturbing story anyway. Uh, yeah, my mother. Uh, died of dementia. Um, although when I wrote the Lincoln Train, she did not have dementia at that point. Well, she probably had it, but nobody, including her, knew it. Um, but yeah, dementia then came to haunt my life for many, 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 many years. So, and of course, now I'm terrified of it. It it, it is hereditary. The form that your mother had is hereditary. No, um, not at all. In fact, hers is probably the result of a, a fall. Oh, that's awesome. Hmm. Yeah, she did not have Alzheimer's. She had what's oh. called non-specific dementia. The sort of thing that NFL players get, but they can't find out about it until they do an autopsy. Yeah, um, and they did not do an autopsy on my mother. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, which, by the way... A huge percentage of people, uh, 80, uh, 50% of all people over 80 have dementia. Yeah. And a slight majority of those people, or maybe even more than a slight majority of those people, do not have Alzheimer's. So in other words, there's an awful lot of non-Alzheimer's dementia out in the world that the people aren't, isn't, aren't talking about very much. Yeah, you can, uh, Parkinson's ends in dementia. Sure, sure, sure. Diseases end in dementia. So yeah. Uh, as you can tell, I yeah. fretted about that as well. <laughs> oh, look, trust me, I understand fretting. I understand fretting. You know, I mean, it, yes, with, I've got teeth and hearing issues at the moment, and all I can do is, it's like, you know when you get a sore tooth and all you can do is poke at it just to make sure, see if it's as sore as it was before? That kind exactly. of fretting. Yeah, it's that sort exactly. of thing. So, oh, but actually, God look, forbid I walk into a room and not remember what I'm there for. <laughs> and they go, that's it, I now have proof, my mind is going. Let, yes. me, let me ask you a question. If your work sort of, sort of breaks down into periods to do with your life, this last couple of years has taken, as, as Gary has talked about, you into Los Angeles, and you've gone through a period of working in a startup uh, doing uh, media-related work. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's that changed how you feel about story? Oh, um, it's made me think a lot about George R.R. R. Martin. How so? Well, if you read George pre-Hollywood and post-Hollywood, he's mm-hmm. a very different writer. Mm-hmm. And what I have done intensively for the last two years is write scripts 
And um, I have written scripts for other people. Oh, hold on. The dogs are going to bark like crazy animals. (laughs) Well, let's introduce the dog to the podcast. Oh, I feel like I'm on Galactic Suburbia. Um, <laughs> the first bark was from not our dog Dino. Hello, not not your dog Dino. Yes. The other one was from our dog Hudson. Hello, your dog Hudson. Yes. Not our dog Dino lives in the other half of the duplex, but hangs here quite often. And Hudson is our dog. And um, our neighbor and landlady is very gracious about letting us steal Dino and very gracious about letting us have a 70-pound golden retriever here. So, <laughs> Am I right in guessing that Hudson was named not in L.A. but was named before L.A. and that Dino is actually an L.A. name for a dog? You are correct on both counts, but we did <laughs> not name Hudson. Hudson is a rescue. Oh, okay. Ah. Yeah. So anyway, this thing about, um, um, since I have been writing for other people and doing that thing where you write a script for someone and they tell you what kind of thing they want and then you, they read it and then they give you notes that may bear very little resemblance to what they told you they wanted. And then sometimes it is even shot and you get to see comments from viewers. I have learned a lot about writing in ways that I would not normally write. Mm-hmm. In many ways, I think I have learned to write for an audience in ways I didn't before. But now you were involved in online. You, 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 you. Am I right? You were writing "I Love Bees," what, ten years ago? Yes, I started in two thousand and three. Two thousand three. Okay, so that's a good guess. So really, you've been doing this for quite. You've been doing this kind of, uh, not pen on paper writing. Let's say for for a decade now. Yes, yes, but never as intensely as the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never full time until the last two years. So it's all been for, what, 42 Entertainment? No, now for Fourth Wall Studios. Okay. Um, I was actually full-time at 42 for a little less than a year, but at Fourth Wall for two years, uh, very much more than just a full-time job, a very, very intense job. And what is the role of a writer in a job like that? Because I've got uh, got some friends who who are gamers, and I know this is not quite gaming, but I've got a good friend who's who's been playing Skyrim, and I was asking her, who wrote Skyrim? And it's like, writers are not, a, it's, it's not a job description in that world, is it? Well, what we do is, um, oh man, you're about to get the pitch. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, that's okay. okay. I mean, you're in LA. LA, we, we need a pitch. You're in yeah, LA. Yeah, nobody even uses those words. Um, so, brace yourself. Eighty percent of Americans, and the percentage of Canadians is even higher, and I don't know in Australia. I suspect, I don't know what your smartphone penetration is in Australia. How's incredibly that? Incredibly high. Incredibly <laughs> high. The smartphone, smartphone penetration here is incredibly high. It's higher in Canada, for example, than it is in the U.S. Um, but eighty uh, percent of Americans watch television with a second screen available, an iPad, a laptop, or a smartphone. Really? And so while they're watching one football game, they're checking the scores on the other football game. While they are watching a reality show, they're texting their friend about what are you going to do for dinner. Um, A show has to be extraordinary. I mean, they they are less likely to pay attention to the second screen during, say, The Walking Dead. Unless they're me, and I'm on my iPhone during the entire Walking Dead because it scares me. (laughs) Thank you as fast as my fingers can go. But um, needless to say, people who make television are very aware of this, and they don't really like it. They would like you to watch their television shows. And the people who pay for television shows 
advertisers like it even less because the few people who do watch television live, when do you think they're most likely to be on their second screen? They're going to be it's texting first. during commercials, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So what we did is if you are watching something we have, a story we have made, and somebody texts somebody, it comes on your phone while you're watching. We put the content across both screens. Oh. New art forms come out of new technologies. I mean, the reason that movies exist, honestly, is because somebody invented a movie camera. Sure. And then they had to figure out what to do with it. I mean, for a long time, for the first few years, what they did is they filmed objects. You know, they filmed trains coming at you or something. Mm. Then they filmed stage plays. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then they were afraid that if you did what we call the cut, people would go crazy. There was debate about this because you were in one reality and then you were in another reality and there was no, you didn't like walk out the door and drive across town and go to, but somebody did it and nobody went crazy. That's the essential vocabulary of film is the cut, but it took them a decade or more to figure it out. When we created computers, the essential art form of the computer is the video game. And the characteristic of the video game turns out to be that it's interactive. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we've been waiting for years to figure out what the art form of the internet is. And people try to hyperlink fiction. Yep, didn't work. Didn't, didn't seem work. to go for it. It's just not the right way to tell a narrative. And if you want me to, man, I could talk about that for an hour and a half, and you really don't <laughs> want to hear it. Um, we know what the characteristics of the internet are as a way to create art. It's multi-platform. It's platform agnostic, actually. Hmm. So unlike every other or almost every other platform we've ever had for art, movie cameras are good at movies. Hmm. Um, the internet doesn't care. You can watch a movie like from Netflix. You can listen to music like from iTunes. I read the New York Times, God help me on my cell phone. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> um, but the internet doesn't care what the what it's presenting. It'll present almost anything. Yes. The internet is really big into sharing community. Mm-hmm. I mean, even way back in the early 90s when I first got on the internet because, of course, Ooh. I'm old. And believe me, in L.A., I'm reminded of that often. I bet you were part of those genie message boards that science fiction ran according to for years and years. I was. I was free flagged on genie. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes. But do you remember Usenet? I remember Usenet vaguely. Yeah, so like Usenet was a place where people who had felt like they were all alone in the world and that they were kind of creepy and nobody understood them, Mm -hmm. for the first time could find out that they may have been creepy and nobody understood them, but they were certainly not all alone. Right. So the running joke was when some poor guy who was like really into goats would go to Usenet for the first time and tremblingly type in (laughs) alt.sex.goats. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Usenet would come back to him and go, <laughs> what breed of goat? <laughs> right. So, I mean, the Internet is really about community and about sharing. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is, it's interactive. So whatever art form arises out of the Internet is probably going to utilize those characteristics. So what right. we've been trying to create is a way of telling stories that reflects all that. Mm. Now, the technology, isn't, the technology isn't there yet, but, of course, the ultimate version of this is the holodeck. Yes. Explain that. Well, you go into the holodeck. It will deliver you anything you want. It's platform agnostic. You want to read a newspaper? Sure. You want to listen to music? Sure. You want to live in the movie? Sure. It's interactive. Mm-hmm. And... You can do it with as many people as you want, or nobody. The closest I guess my question, my question being older than you are, Maureen, is 
As somebody who is a very skilled storyteller in the conventional sense of you are guiding the reader toward mm -hmm. decisions which you have made and you sometimes want to surprise the reader. And I think that one of the I, I go back to the ending of uh, the story after the apocalypse. Stuff like that only works if the writer is leading me along and can surprise me. When I suddenly get to vote on everything that happens in the story, what happens to those surprises? Well, that's one of the things that we found. Hamlet is not a better play if you get to choose the ending. <laughs> I would think not. So, um, yeah, uh, one of the ways we've been exploring, people would like someone who has worked a long time to learn how to tell stories, to continue to tell them stories. I mean, gaming, video gaming, suffers from this problem all the time. And it's a problem that they're still trying to sort out. Um, the, the discussions about how do you tell a story, do you use cutscenes, do you... All of those arguments in video gaming um, are these... We're working through those issues and even more in our field, too. Um, but we're coming at it from a slightly different place because when gaming started, you the 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 actual images were so awful that there was no yeah. way they could compete with movies. But we're starting at a level where, hell, my television is a flat screen television. That means it's a computer monitor. Mm -hmm. So we can do movie quality stuff on your laptop. Um, but yes, um, and I can get into long esoteric conversations about how you answer that question. Um, but I can also say to you, if you go to the website of the company that I worked for, um, it's called Rides, I was in the amusement park, Ride, rides.tv, mm -hmm. and look at a piece called The Gamblers, and put in your phone number and your email because we don't spam because the day we spam we will never get another person looking at it again we don't sell it we nothing bad will happen i swear on a stack of bibles um it's the 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 steps we are starting to learn to how to let you engage without screwing up the story hmm hmm It makes me want to bring that back, though. I mean, if you've spent 10 years thinking about this and working on everything else, do you find yourself now with that at least quiescent for you, looking mm -hmm. to your own fiction and how you're going to apply those tools? I mean, I'm still intrigued by what you're saying with George Martin and how, you've, how you can observe that there's at least a chronological gap in his work and how you can see the pre-Hollywood, post-Hollywood work and... I mean, I do wonder if some of that equates to just the fact, to the fact that he was writing Game of Thrones rather than the kind of work he was writing prior to that, because he only he's only pretty much written Game of Thrones since Hollywood. Right, um, but I don't think he would have written Game of Thrones without Hollywood. And now the other difference is, I wrote all during that time. Yes, but you haven't put out a novel during that time. That's yeah, true. You, I haven't put out a novel in years. I mean, I think the last one was, what, 2001, the last novel came out, Necropolis. Mm -hmm. so, so it's been 12 years. And mm -hmm. there's been probably, what, a dozen or so short stories during that time. Um, do you feel they changed during that time? Because yes, of this sort of experience? Sure. I would say that the zombie story, The Naturalist, yeah. reflects a lot of what I learned I think it's still quintessentially a Maureen McHugh story, but I think, yeah, I think I learned a lot. Although, it's a, just as a footnote in terms of uh, talking about your novels, and I've seen this on a couple of uh, uh, blog posts in the last within the last two weeks, the China Mountain Zhang, which, as, if I'm not mistaken, is having its, this is its 20th anniversary, isn't it? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and now people are looking at China and China's economy is coming back, and people are thinking, wait a minute, that's the novel that told us about this. <laughs> and it was never meant to be predictive. That's so funny. No, it's, it, it, it's odd, and what happens in the United States in that novel isn't likely to happen. But, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, the idea that China Chinese culture could become an economically dominant culture was something in the early... You must have gotten feedback in the early 90s saying you're nuts. I did. I did. Mm -hmm. And um, now I'm being told, you know... Gosh, 
how did you think of that at the time that I'm saying, <laughs> look, China has a huge problem for being an economic juggernaut. It's not going to be. And everybody's going, no, no, no. But you said, and I'm thinking, oh, God. I mean, their problem is that they have this pyramid of because of the one child rule where they have people who are responsible for their parents to their grandparents for and any surviving great grandparents eight. And no social infrastructure to cover that. Mm hmm. Wow. And um, they're a burgeoning middle class. They're. They're suffering from um, an economy which is overheating and slowing down. And, uh, you know, they're no longer the manufacturing powerhouse they used to be. Um, that's all moving to places where people are not demanding better wages. Well, yeah. So, you have to realize you're, you're terrifying me here, Maureen. Why? Because I live in Western Australia. And our entire economy for the last five years has been based upon China buying our resources. Well, China's still going to continue to buy your resources because they're farming all their actual manufacturing out to, you know, Vietnam and mm -hmm. what, I, what you don't want to be is a country bordering China that's in serious economic trouble where China can send its surplus young men to go to war. You feel mm -hmm. this is something that is likely to happen? Well, they do have a huge surplus of men. And, you, and historically, you need to do something with them when that happens. You kind of do. <laughs> there is so you, historical precedent for that phenomena. Hmm. Does any of this attract you to go back and revisit the world of China Mountain Zhang? I mean, I saw when I, before before we uh, started this morning, I was looking at an old interview, and you're sort of saying that you that basically you couldn't imagine at that point going back to it. Uh, do you feel the ground has changed? Yes, and I don't think I could go back to it. Okay. I could write a novel. Well, I don't know if I could or not. If I were to go to that material, it would be in a different story, different setting, different altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other. Let's move on to another novel because uh, here's here's an this is an awkward question to ask. Uh, sure. But but I'll I'll ask it anyway because you're. <laughs> Um, the story, the story, the cost to be wise, is kind of a classic. It gets reprinted every every once in a while. I think it's shown up in a number of anthologies. It's out there. I think it's it's maybe one of your best known stories. But Mission Child, which is the novel that sort of spun off from that story, isn't that widely known. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, why is that? I mean, is it? Is that the sort of thing where the story implied the novel and people didn't need the novel, or that the novel expanded and undermined the story in a way that disturbed people who liked the story? I mean, you could say the same thing about Daniel Keyes with Flowers for Algernon. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the classic short stories, and, and the novel, even though it sold zillions of copies, never gets the respect that the short story did. Um, I know that, um, for example, it, Timmy Duchamp says that it's one of her all-time favorite novels, so I take comfort in that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not a good novel. Uh, I think I'm the novel is, is, is weirdly, although there's no, once you get past the, the stuff about um, um, sustainable um, intervention in the first part, there's not a lot of direct theorizing. Mm -hmm. It's oddly enough an, a weirdly theoretical novel grounded in a science fiction world, hmm. and it keeps changing the things it's 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 about. Because I was uh, curious about a gazillion different things when I was writing that novel, and mm -hmm. it's 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 a messy novel in a funny way, and maybe that's not as fun to read. Um, it's about gender. I it's about all sorts of weird things. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it, and I, I don't know if you even remember, gave it a good review way back when, but... but I, I remember every oh. review, Gary. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Well, let's... let's that sounds on. like a reason to stay off the internet. <laughs> it is! <laughs> You're not one of those people who obsessively hunts down each and every one, reads them, memorizes them, and nurses your pain for, for years to come? You mean, am I a writer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't stopped know. I mean, reading them. You, you stopped? I stopped reading them years ago because I just 
and ever so often, for no reason I can understand, something will happen and I'll be on Amazon and I'll click on one of my novels and start reading the comments. Oh, oh my oh, gosh, no. why would anyone do that? No, no, it's not so wrong. Always, always healthiest to stay well, well away from it. But I always like Gary's reviews, so. Well, thank you. But, uh, and I, here's the other odd thing, and I don't know why I know this. I don't know why I think this. I, I, I was sure I had written a review of After the Apocalypse, and I can't find it anywhere. And all I can think of is that I'd written up a, a set of comments on it and sent them to the other Shirley Jackson judges. Uh, because I remember distinctly things I said about each story. And I <laughs> the most apocalyptic thing in this entire book is what a mom does to her daughter. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was a story, by the way, I could not write when I was writing Mothers and Other Monsters. I wasn't brave enough. Well, I was going to ask because that story is more Mothers and Other Monsters than any of the stories in Mothers and Other Monsters. Yes. But my son had to be grown before I could do that. I can see that. I can see mm -hmm. that. Well, are you done with apocalypticism for the time being, do you think? I have no idea. Um, I'll probably write one or two more. Who knows? Maybe well, not I mean, for a Well, as, as, as we're recording this, the day we're recording this uh, is... Um, the day that we've had another absolutely apocalyptic event in the United States, which I am not able to deal with right now at all because I've got grandkids, but 20, right. 20 kids between the ages of 5 and 10 being shot. And I, I, I keep thinking, how apocalyptic can you get to keep ahead of American culture? Exactly. Exactly. Although, um, Paolo Bacigalupi makes the point to me that if you want to be correct, there is only one apocalypse, and after that, there's nothing. So, uh, but uh, from the metaphorical point of view, uh, that's as apocalyptic as for there are people for whom that's as apocalyptic as it gets. Um, for yeah. all of those parents, for all of oh, those yes. families, you don't have to go any more than that. No. So, yes, I'm right with you. Whereas a lot of fictional apocalypse seems to me to be about convenient clearing of the field so you can tell a different story without having to confront what's going on in the world around us today. The, the real apocalypse grows out of the world that we're in and you have to deal with the, de the damage and the destruction that comes from it, I guess. Right. Um, I, I mean, I obviously meant it in a metaphorical way because mm, sure. a lot of yeah. people, I mean, there's one in here which is just based on a, a medical disaster that happened in England during a drug trial mm -hmm. and the person in it doesn't even get sick but it's a huge event a life-changing event in her life and for the people who get sick it's a hugely life-changing event and I don't know it seems to me that medical disasters have the, the possibility of becoming completely apocalyptic in our lives so yes yeah, and I think it's not it's apocalyptic also when uh when you, your character, for example, is not somebody who's, who suffers directly, not somebody who, who dies, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and the idea of, of, of watching an apocalypse, there's a combination of two ideas, it seems to me, in that story, as I recall it. One is there, is there is the apocalypse, which is a purely personal apocalypse. Mm -hmm. um, and there's the apocalypse, which is the survivor's apocalypse. That is, you witnessed a lot of other people uh, being possibly wiped out or whatever and you have to deal with what amounts to the PTSD of that right, uh, one, of the, right. one of the things I heard on the news today for example was that the the first responders to the school shooting um, uh, in, in Connecticut were being given counseling already I mean imagine what that's like to be and I, I saw on TV, I don't want to spend a lot of time but there's something science fictional every time something like this happens um, that some nurse who was going to the going to the school and then was told on her way there, we don't need you. It's just the most devastating thing you can probably right. say to a professional nurse. Yeah. Well, like at 9-11, um, the hospitals in Jersey preparing for victims, and they never got them. Yeah. Oh. Because there were no injuries. You were either dead or you weren't. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Jerry stuff. Jerry stuff, Gary. Well done. What? 
Well, well done. No, no, no. Oh, I, yes. oh, okay, I've got everybody suicidal listening to the Good Street podcast. One of the well, things that... This is what I do. Well, but you're a nice, cheerful person. How do you explain that? Um, 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 defense mechanisms. Uh-huh. Do, do you write it so that it, it doesn't happen, or do you write it so you can better understand it and, and thereby uh, deal with the fear of it that way? Um, probably better understand it and deal with the fear that way. Once it's out there, it's harder to worry about it. Although I also don't eat chicken McNuggets. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't either. But I, I can see how, how that would work. Um, hmm. Have you begun to think about what you're going to write next yet? Actually, I live in L.A., so I'm writing a screenplay. <laughs> All right. It's a law. <laughs> it does seem to be that. I mean, that and sort of maybe get, a, get work as a waitress. Isn't that the other thing that... Uh, that, that, that comes hand in glove with living in LA. Only if you want to act. Ah. I've no desire to act. I've been on the I, other I, I, side. Well, I mean, or you could be in a reality. You could be in a documentary kind of, you know, Michael Moore kind of thing. Um, oh, that's true. Or I, I mean, could be in a reality show. Yes. Well, not only a reality show, but there there are serious documentary films now about Harlan Ellison, about Chip Delaney. Um, I don't know why no one has made one about Ursula yet, but you know, you, there, there's a there's a market there for films about writers. Um, Another, Ursula first. I, okay. I think I'm a few down on that one. <laughs> That's not how it works, though, is it? Because it comes down to just somebody idiosyncratically being interested, you know? Yes. Uh, and having the right story. I mean, this is why, arguably, it'll be Tiptree first, you know, before you okay. get to um, Le Guin. Yes, yes, because you know. Tip Tree is a great story. Yeah. Plus, the tip, no, I mean, a, a script. This is where you could have actually a docudrama kind of historical script. A movie about Alice Sheldon would be terrific. Um, I don't think there's enough material to do a documentary, but that story, which is all there in Julie Phillips' book, would make a terrific movie. Mm-hmm. I would put Helen Mirren in her role. <laughs> you have to do an American accent, but she'd have no problem with that. Oh I just, yeah, she's great. I just have this feeling you've thought about this too much, Gary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on a campaign to get Helen Mirren as James Tiptree Jr., and I, I'm, I've not gotten very far with it so far. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I haven't even heard of this campaign, and we've done 126 of these podcasts, Gary. So you're well, not, yeah. not not being too out there. It's it, it, The idea is two minutes old. I mean, it's, I've been thinking about it for a while. <laughs> Maureen, what I want to ask you this, writers, here's the thing I've heard from a number of people, and, and now George, I talked to George about this, and he, he said that learning how to write in Hollywood, which he did way back with, I guess, Beauty and the Beast and so forth, is different, and, and he's not the first one to say this, I've heard this from Harlan, I heard it from Frank Herbert, that novelists are the worst people to write screenplays. They are. It's a brutal learning curve. I mean, the amount of the, the the number of words you are permitted in a screenplay is minuscule compared to what you're allowed in even a relatively modest-sized novel. Exactly, and I'm a minimalist writer, and I way overwrote. Oh, it's and the form is so different, and it's as rigid as a sonnet, and everybody comes in mm-hmm. thinking, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sell out. It doesn't matter. Do it. Learn yeah. it. Yes. May, will you not do exactly the commercial formula? If you're good, yes. But mm-hmm. internalize the commercial formula because it will teach you what it is that feels the conventions that feel right to the audience. And I then. I mean, you know, there are conventions in a novel, but by the time we start writing a novel, we have read a thousand of them. Right. So we don't even know that we know those conventions. Well, how many movies have you seen? So yes, Mm, I can write uh, a a movie which doesn't follow the conventions, and you're going to think, what the hell is going on? So yes, I can write a movie that subverts the conventions, 
I can write a movie that does things differently. But if I don't at least let you have a sense of where you are in that 90 minutes or mm. two hours, no. So, yes, come, do the stupid stuff, and then write what it is that you, the artist, are going to write. But understand what you're doing and how your audience is going to react. That sounds remarkably intelligent and unlike the stories I've heard from a number of writers who went to Hollywood. And this story goes back to Scott Fitzgerald and people like that. Uh, I guess the actual thing that I was once on a radio show with Frank Herbert who was trying to write a screenplay for Dune at the point. At that point, the Spanish-Polish director Alejandro Hodorowski had the rights to Dune and he'd asked Frank to write a script. And Frank did, apparently. I've never seen it. I've never heard about it since, but he talked about it on this radio program. And he turned it in, and the director said, this is really good, Frank. Uh, you put everything in the novel in the screenplay, and it's going to be 16 hours long if we film this. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Which, of course, is the attraction of the miniseries now, where you don't have to cut things out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I, I don't think, well... Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. I don't think Dune is right for a screenplay. <laughs> uh, Mostly for those the reasons we're talking about, right? The fact that it's long, involved, multi-strand, and all those kind of things. Yeah. Is part of the attraction to writing in, uh, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, a, a technical challenge for you? S seeing Absolutely. if you can do it, yeah? Absolutely. And um, the real thing that I came out for is this... Uh, this form, this new media, this internet thing, yep. um, it, it's a new art form. It partakes in pieces of older art forms the way that any new art form, I mean, look at the beginning of the novel. Uh, look at Daniel Dufo uh, writing Robinson Crusoe and pretending that it's a nonfiction piece. It's a memoir. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but... Imagine Feels having an opportunity to be one of the people who might shape a new art form. Mm. How, if you have any kind of ego at all, <laughs> you want to be part of that? And the I question just, is, yes. My question is, okay, it's it's a new art form and it's a very collaborative art form. And what is the role of the writer? It seems to me that, as a matter of fact, while we were talking, I went I went to your I went to the website and I looked up the gamblers. And what we have there listed as a writer is, is Sean Stewart, who is a terrific novelist. I mean, I think yes. the, the mistake in The Perfect Circle was the last novel. And one of the things that comes up in discussions, not with necessarily with Sean, who I haven't seen in years, is are, are we going to lose writers like you and Sean to these new media where we will have to really sort of dig down in layers of credits to find out that you're actually doing this? Um, just the same way that you lost George to Hollywood, yes. Well, George Absolutely. came back. Oh, okay. But George came back. George came back. Well, hopefully I will too, and Sean will too. I mean, I, I love collaborating, and I hate collaborating. Is it a challenge right. to find a balance in that? Oh, of course. I mean, how many times when you're sitting in writing do you think, oh, God, I just don't know what to do next? And it's so fun to be in a writer's room and say, turn around and say, oh, God, I don't know what to do next, and have somebody to bounce ideas off of. Oh, like, that's oh, my, my heavens, the, the, my heavens. <laughs> Can I swear? Yeah, yeah. Is oh, that good. swearing? Oh, fuck. How many times oh, have I gotten notes <laughs> from people who I just want to throttle them? Um, you know, when I write a short story... Um, I don't get much in the way of um, revision notes anymore from editors. Mm -hmm. I get some. I'll get some comments, uh, but mostly I get copy edited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when I'm here, oh, man, do I get notes. And I will get notes where someone says this should be longer and someone else says this should be shorter. <laughs> I, you know, it's the, the, the comment process out here is very complex. Luckily, where I worked, it was not crazy. But in many places, it's very political. And 
it's hard. And at those moments, I think I could go write short stories and novels. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and in all honesty, um, there are times out here where the, the, the piece on the website, Rides.TV, called Whispers, is a piece that I wrote that I'm really proud of. The director, George Ratliff, brought things to that that I couldn't. And it feels like a collaboration where the result is the, is the, is greater than the sum of the two parts. When that happens, that's when collaboration is wonderful. I guess my question, that sounds great. And I've heard, I, I've, I've not heard, I've read interviews with screenwriters who feel the same way. I mean, Ernest Lehman, who wrote for Hitchcock, for example, uh, that there's, there's a real synergy that happens. The question that I have is preserving the identity of the writer. I mean, one of the things that's always irritated me and one of the things that's irritated, uh, well, it irritated Pauline and Kael, who wrote a long essay about Herman Mankiewicz and Citizen Kane, which everybody thinks is um, you know, Orson Welles' masterpiece. And her point was, no, it's Herman Mankiewicz's masterpiece. How do you maintain your identity as a writer in a corporate environment like that? You don't. And that's why eventually, yes, I want to go home and write my stuff. But at some point, you want people to know that you wrote this, like the one you were just describing to us. Except if you do that, if you want that, you don't come here. Hmm. It's just, sorry. It's, yes, exactly. You just, not knowing that is a mistake. And I guess I'm, that's true. I made that decision a long time ago. I am invested enough, interested enough, and enjoy it enough that I'm willing to make that decision. I am willing to know that not only do I write these things, but I also, like I said, um, when I write a script for this, it has instructions as to how the thing works. Uh So I not only write the story, I write the the thing that makes it what it is. I know if this is not like hyperlink fiction, but actually an art form that will continue, and I don't know, Uh that I have made some steps towards what this thing will be 10 years from now. I've stamped it. Yeah. That's what I want. Will anybody know that? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe somebody will write their dissertation. Maybe Pauline Kael of the future will write this this review in which she says, nobody gives Maureen McHugh credit for what she <laughs> did. I don't, uh, but as an artist, it's really satisfying to do that. I but, guess it's, yeah, go ahead. But then when I want my name, I'll go back home and I'll write my stuff. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a very healthy attitude, actually. Because uh, I wonder, when we're talking about George in Hollywood, for example, and I, he has phenomenally huge followings now uh, worldwide, and I wonder how many of those people go back and look at the new Twilight Zone episodes that he wrote or the uh, Beauty and the Beast episodes that he wrote. I, I, I doubt if it's made a lot of difference. Right, right. Agreed. And I'm not sure he particularly wants them to. I'm not sure he does either, although Sand Kings was pretty good. Yes, yes. Good but I mean, I, I guess... I'm excited about Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah, Beauty and the Beast, I'm not sure. <laughs> Just, yes. I mean, it's so different from the work he's putting out now. I think you're right, just as a footnote to that. I think you're right, because I was looking at uh, Song for a Lie, his first book, the collection of short stories, and Good Morning Comes Mistfall. He was a very sentimental, romantic writer uh, at the mm-hmm. beginning of his career, and now he's as tough-minded, he, he just loves killing off your favorite character uh, whenever he gets a chance. So th- that, that's changed a little bit, but I think that's partly changed because when he realized that the stuff he had been doing voluntarily in his fiction 
was now a requirement in Hollywood, I think he rebelled against that. I think, as he said many times in interviews, he wanted to write something that he was not allowed to write um, uh-huh. in actual games of Hollywood. Although he is still romantic in the um, literary sense, a la yeah. Byron and um, Shelley, and he loves, that's a, Game of Thrones is romantic in the grand scale. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, but yes, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think uh, there are other marks of his time in Hollywood. Um, one of the things you do when you need to generate a plot in a series is you bring in a character. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens a lot in Game of Thrones. <laughs> so you think he's learned as many good habits as bad habits? Uh, yes, mm-hmm. I, I think he has. <laughs> I don't mean that as a criticism. I think it's. I mean, it's interesting to see him evolve. I've also been cur- curious because I feel like there's something that's not there in the fiction anymore. Uh, I'm not saying that the the new fiction is is worse, but I look at stories like the Skin Trade that he did yes. before, and you see nothing like that in the modern work. It's very different. Yes, and I I worry about that as well. Um, um, I am because in in his case, his writing became so robust. Yeah. Ah. Um, and that's such a good thing. But I don't know that my writing is ever going to become monumentally robust. Um, but what I am afraid of losing is nuance and subtlety, because my because I'm a minimalist so much. If I lose subtlety, there's just going to be no there there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think I. By robust, I assume you mean robust in an almost Victorian sense of what they used to call muscular Christianity, only it isn't Christianity now. Exactly, exactly. Oh. I mean, he is just in such control of, of the, uh, I don't know any other word for it, the muscularity of his, of his plot yeah. lines, his prose and his action and it, his tension and his conflict. and it, I mean, it just... It doesn't let you go. No, and it's... Um, actually, the, the best description of what I heard was... Uh, my, my friend Peter Straub, who never reads fantasy, who's never read a fantasy trilogy in his life, had re- read... just gobbled those books up. And, and he said, because that's completely on-the-ground writing. Yes. There's, there, there's no pulling back. There's no perspective. It's what's happening now. It's what's in front of you. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, you know extremely experiential in the way that it's a hard boy it's hard-boiled fantasy in a way yeah yeah yes and less mannered than hard-boiled yeah, stories yes it is extremely funny to, to describe fantasy as not mannered <laughs> uh, well I think that's one of the things that made it seem new uh, as well mm-hmm. but that, mm-hmm. that, that, that just back to your fiction because you know all the science fiction Novels. All the novels have been science fiction. We haven't really even talked about Half the Day is Night or uh, uh, Necropolis. But uh, but then you sort of shifted into fantasy in some of the short fiction. Do you think that if you write another novel, it's going to tend toward fantasy or science fiction, or toward it doesn't make any difference because all genres are the same now anyway? I don't know. I was kind of kicking around the idea of a fantasy novel, but I don't know. So it just depends on where the novel takes you. Um, it, yeah, it just depends on what I actually sit down and write. <laughs> uh, I started a couple of novels um, after Necropolis that dead-ended on me. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know right now what's going to come next. Do the short stories give you a chance to go back and sort of touch base with your writing in amongst all of the work you've been doing? See, you know, see that you still have that kind of subtlety and the kind of things that you're hoping haven't gone away. Yes, um, and also they just feel really good to do. Um, they're mine. Yeah. I can start them and get them done, and they scratch the itch. Um, I've always written. You know, people say write what you know. Yeah. Um, I always write to find out what I don't know. Um, I always write about the things that worry me or interest me or that I the, to answer questions, which I never actually answer, but I sort of start to explore them. 
Do you ever get a sense in the stories, let's take the stories in um, after the apocalypse, that some stories are pretty much all you can do with that material, it's what you want to do, and some stories have a world which you think, I could do more with that world? Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, I don't think I will, but there's a story in there called Useless Things, which takes place in a um, in the Southwest that's drying up. Mm-hmm. And I think I could easily go back to that Southwest, there's a, that there's a, a lot of stories in that Southwest. Um, on the other hand, mm-hmm. a place that probably seems to many people like I could write a lot more stories in there, which is... Uh, the setting of a story called the effect of centrifugal forces in which it turns out that you're going to you can get you everybody's been infected with mad cow disease because they ate chicken oh. mcnuggets i don't think that there's any more to do with that well i would think uh that the um the the, the opening story on uh, the one in, in cleveland is is pretty much as much as far as you want to go with that but i guess right. i guess it has to do with the nature of the apocalypse doesn't it um, yeah because the the Southwest in useless things, and this is this is the kind of thing that critics do, which is completely unfair. But it, you know, in some <laughs> ways, it echoed it echoed Mary Rosenblum's Dryland stories. Yes, um, which is uh, was a very persuasive kind of idea that seemed to uh, it seemed seemed to sustain her career for a while there. And there was a, there was a collection of Dryland stories. Was there a Drylands novel? Yes, there was. Okay, um, and it's and it's the kind of thing where. Okay, you have a credible ap- apocalyptic scenario, and there are lots of things within that world which would be compelling novels. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I've always been fascinated by those, not quite at the end of the tether, not quite the end of the world novels, but the world is really in bad shape, and mm-hmm. and human dramas within that context. I even thought that Mary, uh, let me think. There's. Doris Lessing's Memoirs of a Survivor is, is set in a decaying future London, and she could have written six or seven novels in that world. I think, frankly, that I love that novel. I love to hear you say that. Oh, good, because I think that part of the fifth child is in that same world. Uh, she just doesn't say it. That's very possible. Yes. But there's nothing terribly explicit about that world, other than that there are catastrophes. The world is in London is falling apart, gangs are taking over, supplies are running low, water is running low, and so forth. And once you set that up, it provides a kind of dramatic background for any number of stories. I was thinking of that novel when I was writing the scenes in After the Apocalypse where the refugees come in and then they leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered about that. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, and most people don't even think of that as one of her science fiction novels. Oh, but it's so science fictional. It's apocalyptic. Oh, it's very apocalyptic, and it seems even more real now than it as do some of your stories. <laughs> Which is not a good thing, by the way. It's a good thing for your no. stories, not a good thing for us. No, no. Uh, but one of the things that I do think is true is that, you know, you, you keep thinking it can't get any worse than this, but it doesn't, you just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Which just might be a metaphor for old age. <sighs> well, on that cheery note, that, that not really very cheery note, I think we're trickling towards the end of our hour, Gary. And so I think oh, it might, no. might, well, it happens, you know, every week it happens. We come together, we talk about things science fictional. And depressing. Well, not always depressing. I have to say, I mean, I read After the Apocalypse, the, the collection and the stories and Mother's, Mother's and Other Monsters, and I didn't find them depressing. Well, I good. found them engaging and interesting and rewarding and occasionally unpleasant, but not not depressing. No, I have to say, I, there, I have two reactions to that. One is a literary reaction, one is a social reaction. The social reaction is that, wow, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> the literary reaction is that so many apocalyptic stories are displaced frontier stories in which we have heroic action in the face of a zombie apocalypse or disease. And you can see that in The Walking Dead, for example. And right. what I thought Marine stories did, at least the most powerful of the stories in that, said, no, you know, apocalypses don't bring out the best, the best in people. They can bring out the worst in people. Yes. And the other thing I will say, though, is... is you know, I made this thing about it's sometimes a metaphor for old age or middle age or whatever. 
in many ways, this is the happiest time of my life. I'm 53, and in so many ways, I feel at the top of my game. And I feel like I am so much better able to deal with the world. I just know stuff. I like things. I'm comfortable with myself. I, I have this set of skills and knowledge that I didn't have when I was 25. Thank God I had all that energy because I needed it because I used it so badly. So, and, you know, many of the, 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 the one story in um, After the Apocalypse, the, the story, the medical story, and it ends with dancing. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I, a lot of times I think, you know, you just dance. It should always end with dancing. We should yes. end with Yes. Well, podcasts don't end with dancing, but they do end with us thanking you very, very much for taking the time to join us. We've enjoyed it a great deal. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so very much. Well, thanks, Gary. And thank you, Jonathan. Hey. And, and I hope cool. that we will see more work from you that uh, sometime soon. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope I'll see you sometime next year. Uh, Maybe in Texas. Maybe in Texas. There's a possibility. Maybe in San Antonio. I'm hoping. Okay, so well, am I. Until San Antonio. Take good care. Until San Antonio. Okay. Okay. Bye. Good night.